0: Hosea chapter 5, and I'd invite your attention there tonight. Uh, We're looking at a time, you know, Hosea, as best I can tell, had eight different messages uh, that he presents in this book. And you understand that long before uh, this was written down, these were messages, sermons that were preached, and Hosea preached them all around uh, Israel And the first one we've already completed. The first one was God's dysfunctional family. The first three chapters of the book dealt with his marriage to Gomer and the children that they had. And her unfaithfulness. And how that was all used as an example to the message. The second message then was God's indictment. it moves from that family scene almost to a courtroom scene. As God begins to pronounce charges, he calls them. An indictment. Against the nation, people, priests, and politicians. And that's where we are tonight. We are in God's statement to the politicians, to the king's house. It was in those days. Let's stand together then as we read Hosea chapter 5 and verse 1. Hear you this, O priest, and hearken, ye house of Israel, and give you ear, O house of the king, for judgment is towards you. Because you've been a snare on Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer. You may be seated. God's indictment against Israel, as it always does, names both the crimes and the criminals. Uh, people, priests, and Politicians. Uh, once again, America is suffering through a political season. Man, they come along just really quickly in America, don't they? Seems like we just finished one, and as soon as we get one uh, political process behind us, lo and behold, they start running for the next office. Uh, the next one starts just as soon as the last one stops, it seems. and I must admit to a certain disenchantment with the whole process. In fact, I would call myself apolitical if it wasn't for some things the Bible teaches us about politics. Romans chapter 13 says this. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger. To execute wrath on him who practices evil. The governing authorities. I'm not going to preach on Romans 13 tonight. I just wanted to mention that to you as a reminder. God takes credit for putting people in political office. Whoever they are, wherever they are. Paul's reasoning in this passage is that since God has all power and authority, and he does, then any powerful person must be an extension of his power. That's the argument that Paul makes in Romans 13. It's like a powerful electric motor that's basically useless unless it's plugged in to the electrical uh, grid somehow. It has to be plugged into a power supply. It can't operate on its own no matter how powerful it is. That does not mean tonight that God is responsible for every decision our politicians make. Amen? Can you say amen to that? No, no, no. doesn't mean that they always do what is right or what's good or what pleases God. no. Uh, we have to also acknowledge that God sometimes put our political leaders in place to judge us as implements or instruments of His judgment. You remember Saul in the Old Testament? Remember what God said about him and what he would do? Uh, The people wanted a king for all the wrong reasons. They wanted a king so they could be like everybody else. That was not why they should have wanted a king. God gave them a king just like what they wanted. He did. Sometimes God does that today, I believe. God places people as implements or instruments of His judgment in political power, but still the political leaders bear the sword. That's what Paul said, and they don't bear it in vain. That is, their primary task is to restrain evil. And they do so by bringing judgment, that's the sword, against those who commit evil, evildoers. Since they are appointed by God, they're therefore accountable to God. And like all of us, we must all give an account unto God. So one day our political leaders will give an account to God, somehow, some way, for the way they have conducted themselves and the way they've used their power and authority. They will. It's a sad commentary on the depravity of humanity that often the worst kinds of evil are practiced by the very people that God intends to restrain it. Instead of restraining it then, they unleash it. It's no wonder then that God tells us to pray for them. Remember I told you I can't be apolitical because of some of the things the Bible says. One of them is Romans 13. The other one is 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Pray for your leaders. And my, the leaders of America today need the prayers of God's people, whether they know it or not whether they want them or not. In fact, if they don't know it and they don't want them, they need them even more. God describes in our text tonight what happens to a nation, to a people, when the people and the priests and the politicians all get together to lead a nation against the plans and the purposes of God. God would direct himself to the king's house, the palace, as we call it. But yet all three of these are mentioned. You see, politicians, for all their suggestion to the contrary, cannot create policy that determines the direction of a nation. They can't. All really politicians can do is to react to the direction that the nation is already taking. Uh, that's just a fact. There might be uh, occasional uh, exceptions to that rule where uh, some judges might uh, get drunk on their own power and impose some rulings that they want to become the law of the land and those kind of things do happen. But for the most part, what happens in the political process is a reflection of what's going on in the streets. I've said it before. I'll say it again tonight, even if Facebook kicks me off. If America was still going to having 80% of its people going to church on Sunday morning like we were 150 and, and even uh, uh, 60, 70 years ago, uh, we wouldn't be electing the people we are to office right now. It wouldn't be happening. What's going on in Washington then is a reflection of what's going on in the streets of America. So God sees them all together. And yes, the churches, the preachers, they're not immune either. They're all, they were all in on it in Israel. And unfortunately, too often, they're all in on it in America too. When politics and politicians go bad and the people and the priests are all involved in that going bad, God mentions that they become a snare on Mizpah and a net on Tabor. These were two cities uh, two mountains on different, rather, two mountains on different ends of Israel, strategically located, long used as outposts to warn of impending danger. So think for a moment tonight about Hosea's words when Mizpah and Tabor become a snare and a net. When instead of sounding the alarm, They become the source of the trap that's being set for the nation. It's hard for us to imagine, perhaps tonight, that a trap has been set for the nation of our own land, our own nation, the United States of America. It's hard to believe that. Uh, But, folk, the enemy has been setting traps for nations for generation after generation after generation. And many, many a nation has fallen into them. So what was happening when the the people were headed in a direction, the priests were allowing them to go and going with it, and the politicians then join in making it all legitimate? What happens? Well, the things that should then provide a measure of restraint, the things that should provide protection, the things that should be sounding a warning, instead become the very source of the trap, the greatest threat to the nation. Instead of protecting Israel, they were becoming the source of God's judgment against them. If it sometimes sounds tonight that I get these two things all wound up together, it's because in studying this out and looking at it again this week, uh, it was just remarkable to see how similar the situation was in Israel to the situation we have in America today. The similarities are uncanny, eerie almost. And so if it seems like I I can't figure out whether I'm preaching about Israel or America, it's because sometimes I really can't tell the difference. Uh, Yes, I'm preaching about Israel, but yes, I'm also preaching about our country today. God help us. I am. So let's see tonight then God's correction. There are at least six corrective measures God was going to take against Israel because of how the people, the priests, and the politicians were taking the nation away from God. And the first thing God describes is that He would unleash the power of sin. Uh, Hosea chapter 5 and verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of harlotry is within them and they know not the Lord. Such a powerful statement in this passage. Their deeds will not allow them or permit them to return to their God. You see that's a part of the blinding and binding power of sin. At first we choose sin. But then sin chooses us back. And then once... Sin has chosen us back. Then sin sin starts making our choices for us. It's right there in the text. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. What began as a choice becomes a compulsion. And in our language today, we call it an addiction. But there's never been an addiction that did not begin with a choice. You won't find it in Scripture. We're not not born with some specific choice already made or predetermined for us. So yes, I could say, yes, someone is addicted, but yes, they first made that choice themselves. For all of our sophistication today, we think somehow we can avoid the daunting Power and effects of sin. But we're deceiving ourselves. Sin still does what it's always done. And God says it very plainly. Your sin will not allow you. Will not permit you to return to God. And in fact God says you don't know me at all. You don't know me at all. If you listen to the news very much, you'll hear a lot of politicians these days talking about God. And what they're saying about God, I have to say exactly what Hosea said long ago. They don't know God. They don't know God. If they knew God at all, they wouldn't be talking about Him that way. Second thing, then, that God does is He says uh, that He'll allow pride to do what pride does. So sin does what sin does. Pride then goes to work. The pride of Israel testifies to His face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. You know, pride is unique among all the sins. In a perfect environment, I won't say it was a perfect world because this was before the world as we know it was created. It was in a perfect environment with only God and His holy angels. And what was the sin that showed up? And where did it come from? God didn't create it. In a perfect environment with God and His holy angels, Lucifer, the most beautiful of all the angels... God would say to him, iniquity has been found in you. What was it? His heart was lifted up. Pride. Pride. No wonder when God gives us a list of seven sins, pride is at the top of the list. The Old Testament tells us a good king, Uzziah, serving God, he was marvelously blessed. He began to be king when he was uh, still just a teenager. A young man assumed the throne and God worked mightily in his life and blessed him. Uh, he wrought, wrought curious inventions, the Bible says, amazing things that he did. One victory after victory after victory after victory. But then 2 Chronicles 26 gives us this statement. But when he was strong, when he was in his prime, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. What took King Uzziah down? Pride. Good man, godly man, great leader leading Israel. What took him down? Pride. Now, if pride could take down one of God's holy angels in a perfect environment, and pride could take down a man like good King Uzziah, How much more susceptible do you think you and I are to pride? Oh, we've all got it. The more gifted we are, the more God uses us, the more He blesses us, the more likely we are to fall victim to this sneaky, sneaky, insidious sin. Pride. The pride of Israel testifies to His face. It's no wonder... That Satan uses pride so effectively. Pride blinds people to the effect sin is having on their life. And I like that song Brother Mark sang. You know, we can look in the mirror and see the effects of time. But there's no mirror that will show the pride that's in our heart. We can be eat up with it and not even know it. It's the alcoholic who says, well, I'm, I'm not a drunk. The addict who says, I can quit any time that I want to. The sexual aberrant who said, well, I was born this way. There's nothing wrong with it. The rebellious teenager who says, it's my life. I can do what I want to with it. On and on and on. I could give you examples tonight. Of how it's not just sin, but it's prideful sin. Interestingly, God says that not only will Ephraim and Israel stumble then in their sin, because sin will be unleashed and pride comes with it. So that their sin has them bound and pride then has them doubly bound. The point that they don't even know who God is anymore. Where He is or how to get back to Him. This is the power of sin. And the saddest part is that others are harmed. Judah, God says, will stumble with them. The sins of Israel were spreading down to the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember I told you Hosea was prophesying in a prosperous time in Israel. It was. Oh, they had money. They had security. They had alliances with foreign governments. They they had been doing very well. Judah was caught up in it too. That's so often the way it is. The sad reality of it is that it's the most innocent people in our lives that pay the price if we get caught up in sin. And in prideful rebellion. So God unleashes their sin then. They've chosen their sin. And sin is doing what it's going to do. They don't know who God is anymore. A second consequence of what was happening then. Was that pride would go to work. And do what it does so well. But then something specifically that God says he will do. He withholds his presence. With their flocks and herds, they shall go and seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn Himself from them. You see, their flocks and their herds would refer to the sacrifices that they would take with them to offer unto God. And yet for all of their herds of sacrifices, God says, they won't find me. You see, with this sinful and prideful people, the powerful worship of God is impossible God says, I'll withdraw myself from you. But it's an interesting thing about God's people. You know, we do like good worship services. We do. We we like good music. We like good songs. We like to come to church. We like church. And, and, And we like it when church feels good, amen? We even like it when church feels bad. But we especially like it when church feels good. We like it. We want powerful worship services. Let me tell you something tonight. There's no way we can have real, true spirit and in truth kind of powerful worship services with a sinful, prideful people. Can't happen. Can't happen. God says, I will draw myself from you. Now, we're resourceful in America. (laughs) You know what? If things ain't going good, we'll just, no offense uh, to all our musicians here tonight, but if things aren't going good, we'll just turn the music up. Uh, Bring in a few laser lights maybe and, uh, you know, we'll, hey, we can can make things happen. We can make something happen. And I'm not going to tell you it don't feel powerful. But there's no true and powerful worship that comes on a sinful people without repentance. It starts there. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. You remember that? Grace and truth. If you want the grace, you've got to deal with the truth. The psalmist said it in the Old Testament. You want an Old Testament passage? It's Psalm 88. Mercy and truth have kissed each other. They've met together. Mercy and truth. Jesus brings them both together. You want mercy? Fine. You get truth. You get truth. You accept the truth. You become mercy. So a sinful, prideful people saying there's nothing wrong. Everything's good. We're fine. No, they're not. How do they know it? They feel it in their hearts. When they gather together to the praise and worship of God. We can find almost any cause for deficient worship besides our sin. Uh, There's a bunch of usual suspects. Man, things just ain't the same up at church anymore. Do you ever think maybe what's not the same is you or me? American Christianity wants you to see all the joy without repentance. But guess what? Ancient Israel wanted the same thing, and God wouldn't give it to them. I've withdrawn my presence from you. Now, as always tonight, I'm going to give you a little pause and just remind you. Everything God says in this passage is not bad news. There's good to come. Hang with me but the tough stuff. Hosea 5 and 7, They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. And now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Now the word translated pagan in this passage literally means strange. And in fact, some translations have it. uh, You have uh, have dealt treacherously with the Lord, and you have begotten uh, strange children. Uh, but any parent uh, knows that you don't have to be sinful and rebellious to have strange kids. Amen? I mean, we know, <laughs> we, we know that. Uh, so the, the meaning of strange, you see, has changed. The idea was that they would be a pagan kid. That, that is, their children would grow up with a foreign god. Listen. Their children would grow up with a foreign god and with foreign values. That's what being a pagan meant. Rather than knowing God and His Word and His truth. The new moon spoke of the first of the month in the Jewish lunar calendar. The time when sacrifices and offerings were made. But instead then of the new moon being a time of repentance and restitution. Instead the new moon would devour them. Because they wouldn't know where their pagan religion stopped. And the true worship of God began. Kids were confused. They grew up kids with, raised kids that kids were raised in with both God and a foreign God. Both the Word of God, but foreign truth as well. Does that sound familiar? Lastly then, they'll be plunged into war. Verse 8, Blow ye the cornet in Gibeah and the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at beth After thee, O Benjamin, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. The princes of Judah were like them that removed the bound. Therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. The cornet and trumpets were the sounding of alarms that told them that an enemy was approaching. Historically, the presence of an enemy that was able to invade Israel was viewed as judgment from God. He speaks of how they would run to other countries for help, but no help would come. The enemy would wreak havoc upon them. The nation was going to be left destitute. It would begin, interestingly enough, with property disputes between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But their enemies would take advantage of the turmoil within and come in and overthrow them. And I'll go ahead and say this tonight too. Remember I told you this is eerily familiar. As American people, folk, we need to open our eyes to the fact that the enemies of this country are working hard to divide us. And they are stoking the fires of division because they know it will weaken us and make us easier to overcome. That's what happened in Israel. They first fought themselves. And then... Their enemies came and took them over. The last thing God says is that he would work personally against them. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked after the commandment. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth and unto the house of Judah as rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then They went to Ephraim, to the Assyrian, and sent to King Jerob. Yet could he not heal you, nor cure you of your wound. And By the way, it was the Assyrians, ultimately, who would conquer them. I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. And so, this message from Hosea culminated with this point. God describes them like moth and rust, rottenness or rust. And we know those two things are things that work rather small, or rather slowly, rather, in small ways, incremental ways. Um, those of you who still wear suits that maybe have a wool blend, you know how a moth can get a hold there they lay eggs on it then the eggs hatch and the first thing you go pick out and pick up your suit coat and put it on and you look down and 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 it looks like you've been smoking a cigarette man just little holes all over your suit The, the moths work slowly but they do work it'll take them a long time to eat up that garment rust works slowly but it does work It comes slowly obviously But then there's the lion. Lions are known for the swiftness of their attack. How they come and take and tear away catastrophically and kill. Do you realize tonight that God knows how to bring both kinds of judgment in our life? God may judge slowly. And in His mercy, He may be giving us time to repent. Then there will be a time when the time for repentance is over. And God knows that. And so he says I'll come upon you suddenly. Like a lion. Tear it away. That's God's condemnation. God's judgment then upon the nation. People, priests, and politicians. All in cahoots one with another. Yeah, I watched a few old westerns in my day, all in cahoots, one with another. And God bringing judgment upon a nation because of it. Thank God we not only see the consequences, but we also see God's cure. There is a cure that is offered. It's offered very simply. Verse 15, Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. "If If this was a Baptist church, this would be invitation time. Here's the cure. I will go and return to my place. That's God speaking. I'll go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Three things here. God will remove and move in correction then and return to his place. The prescription has been supplied. But a person can die of an illness while they have a medicine chest full of medicine that would save their life. A person can starve to death with a cabinet full of food that could nourish them. We have to do what God says. And what is that? Well, first he says you have to acknowledge your transgression. That in the New Testament was called confession. We confess when we agree with God and we say, yes, God, I've sinned, we've sinned. When Daniel prayed his classic prayer of confession in the Old Testament uh, Daniel prayed for God to forgive his sin When Isaiah began to pray for his nation He said, I'm a man of unclean lips and Yes, I dwell among a people of unclean lips See, it's not enough just to sit around and talk about what they are doing Let's talk about what we're doing Secondly, then, we must seek God's face. That's one of the hardest things about it, is the face-to-face part. (laughs) We even say it. Listen, I don't know how I'm going to face them. Have ever said that? See, that's the hardest part, is that face-to-face part. We must seek God's face. But we in our hearts... We look to Him up close personal. We speak to Him, God, I've sinned against you. Face up to it. And then He says, They will seek me early. They'll seek me in repentance. I don't have time to preach much more on this tonight. But I'm going to read a passage to you from Isaiah chapter 58 because for the Jewish people in the Old Testament... Repentance almost always went together with fasting. Over and over again, you see it throughout the Old Testament. Whenever, especially when a nation turned to God in repentance, they would always turn to God in fasting. So let's look at what God said about it. What does fast mean? Let me be careful to to define that for you. It's gone so far out of our vernacular, you may not know what it means. It means you don't eat food. You'll die. Not for a long time. Not for a long time. Isaiah 58, 4. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I've chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bull rush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? You see, Isaiah was calling out their method of fasting. Jesus did the same thing, by the way. He talked about how they put ashes on their head and sackcloth on their body and spread things out, spread out themselves on the ground and made a big show of everything. Calling on God, thinking God was going to hear him. He knew they was just putting on a show. God said, this is what I have chosen. This is the fast that I have chosen. You fast then to loose the bonds of wickedness. You fast to undo heavy burdens. Listen to me tonight. You fast to let the oppressed go free. You fast to break every yoke. Four reasons that God told us to fast. And so, well, Brother Rich, isn't that an Old Testament thing? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember when he said, "When you give, you know you don't give like the hypocrites do, and blow the trumpets and make a big show of it." You know, you, when you give, he said, "You don't let your left hand know what your right hand do." Do we give? I hope we do. Do we believe giving is a part of the New Testament? Of course we do. When you pray, Jesus said, "Don't pray like the hypocrites do, loud and long, and standing up and beating their head." No, no, no don't, don't, don't pray like that. Don't pray like the hypocrites do. They think they'll be heard for their much repetition. No, don't pray like that. When you pray, you pray like this. And he gave them then that marvelous instruction on prayer. When you give. When you pray. When you fast. When you fast. Not if, when. Remember the Pharisees fussed at Jesus. Well, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus said, because the bridegroom is here. This This is a time for celebration. It's not a time for fasting now. There'll be a time for fasting. That'll come later, and sure enough, it was. Paul talked about him fasting often with that simple, simple, little short blurb then let's understand, fasting and repentance often came together. If this isn't time for God's people to fast and pray in America right now, I don't know when that time's ever going to come. Why do we pray? We pray. God said it. You pray to loose the bonds of wickedness. You pray to deliver those who are in oppression. You fast and pray when you're burdened down with a heavy burden. Time then for repentance. God gives us a cure. We acknowledge our transgression. We seek our face. We turn to Him in repentance. It's right there in the passage. You know, the question is, will we actually avail ourselves of God's prescription? Well, it didn't happen in Israel. I hate to bring bad news to you. It didn't happen back then. What did they do? They went right on about their business right until the Assyrians came and wiped them out just like God said he would. It's a terrible time. And that time of judgment may come to our land as well. But what we're looking at in the Old Testament book of prophecy, the prophecy of Hosea, we're looking at a time when there was still a chance for them to repent. And I believe there's still that time in America today for America to repent. But where does such a thing start? Where it's always started if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Yeah. Yeah. Let's stand together, please.